Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Tonight, we're looking at the subject of the role of God the Son. The role of God the Son. We're continuing our Bible study series on the doctrine of the Trinity. I believe that the Trinity is the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith because it reveals to us who God is. Last week, we looked at God the Father. And this evening, we're going to look at God the Son, Jesus Christ probably the most esteemed in our minds, person of the Trinity. But I want you to know this, that all three of them are equal. I wrote down the statement. I said, Jesus Christ is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Today, as we come to, to, to this chapter right here in Mark's Gospel, we understand Jesus is, is on His way into a town called Caesarea Philippi, a region within the land of Israel. And on the way to this region, Jesus asked his disciples, and he says, who do men say that I am? And of course, they said here, uh, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Some people say that you're the prophet Elijah. Some people say that you're, that you're one of the other prophets. And, and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? He says, I, I understand what all these other people say, but I want to know, who do you say that I am? And they said, in fact, Peter responded and said, you are the Christ. My question tonight is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Was he just a man? Was he just a, a great speaker? Was he a great leader? Was he a prophet? Or was he God in the flesh? Whatever you believe about Jesus Christ will determine a whole lot of other aspects about you in your life. Tonight, I just want to briefly summarize. In fact, not just summarize, but I want to give a, a, a brief survey of the New Testament, about what the New Testament says about God the Son, how God the Son is God in the flesh. In theology, we call it His divinity. To make it a little bit more easy to understand, we call it His deity. That is, Jesus Christ, I like how Pastor English said it, he said, Jesus Christ was just as much man as man. And he said, he, Jesus Christ is just as much man as man as man, and just as much God as God as God. And tonight we understand that, that Jesus Christ was fully divine in the flesh, but he was also fully man. John, in John's Gospel, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, speaking of God the Son and God the Father, and the Word was God. The Bible says in verse number two, the same was in the beginning with God. And so obviously John's gospel, John is writing and he's pointing back to the book of Genesis. And the Bible says in Genesis that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And we know in verse number two, the Holy Spirit was present and God the Father was present in verse number one of Genesis one. But we see that the New Testament revelation and the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding of the Old Testament passage in Genesis to reveal to us that God the Son was there with 
God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then we understand that the Word in verse number 14 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, says the Word was made flesh. The Word made, it literally gives the idea that, that the Word, God the Son, came down and entered into humanity and tabernacled among us. Imagine the Israelites in the, in the wilderness, and there they had their tabernacles, they had their tents, and they set them up. The Bible literally says that God the Son left His heavenly throne, and He came and He put on a tabernacle of flesh and lived among us. John chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says that Jesus calls God his Father, and the Pharisees sought to kill him because when he said God was his Father, it was making him equal with God. John chapter 10 and verse 30, the Bible says, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. In John chapter 14, verse number 9, Jesus said, that great chapter where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus extends His words to the disciples, and He says, He that has seen Me has seen the Father. John chapter 20, verse 28, we see Jesus is now in His resurrected state. We see that Jesus has risen from the grave. Defeated death, defeated hell, defeated the grave. And there he has been seen by the disciples, by the women, and by Thomas. And in verse number 28, Thomas makes physical, personal contact with the Son of God. And he says, my Lord and my God. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 6. The Bible says, Paul wrote this great doxology hymn in Philippians, and he said that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so he was literally saying that God the Son was God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, speak about how Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. And because he is preeminent, it literally means that, that, that because he's preeminent and deserves first place in our life, that he is God. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that seek first the kingdom of God. And Paul says, make Christ preeminent, therefore Christ is God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. I, I love, I love this verse. This verse is literally the gospel in one verse. And it says, great, and it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It says, God, theos, if you will, not just he, but it literally means God. It says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. That is the gospel in one verse. And I might preach a message from that during Christmas very soon. Titus chapter 3, verse 13. It says, We are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious return of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So not just, not just Jesus as our Savior, but also Jesus as our God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We, we looked at this a while back on Sunday mornings while we were able to meet normally. But here in these verses, it speaks about how Jesus is the express image of God. He is God who spoke the word into existence. And He is God in the flesh. Revelation chapter 1 says, 
quoting Jesus' word. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He literally says, I am the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and I am the, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the A to Z and everything in between. He says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. In other words, he is saying, I am eternal. I had no beginning and I have no ending. Jesus Christ is co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is the most important aspect of theology because I believe it contains the foundational truth of God, and that is this truth. There is one and only one true and living God who is eternally existing and entirely expressed in three distinctive persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And tonight, I'm so excited, we're looking at God the Son. So what is the role of God the Son? I want to share with you five thoughts this evening. And within five, with underneath five thoughts, these five thoughts, I have three statements I want to relate to you about each of these five thoughts. So the first thought we're going to look at this evening is the role of God the Son and creation. The role of God the Son and creation. So last week we looked at God the Father. We looked at how God the Holy Spirit and God the Father were present and actively present in creation. But you need to understand this, that the person, that the person of the Trinity, of the triune God, who actually spoke the world into existence was God the Son. We see that the New Testament reveals to us this specific truth in John 1, in Colossians 1, and in Hebrews chapter 1. That's what we're going to look at this evening. The first thought I have for you is this. God the Son is the creator of the universe. God the Son is the creator of the universe. He is the one who spoke this world into existence. If you got your Bibles, turn over there to John's Gospel and chapter number 1. I already shared with you verses 1 and 2 and verse number 14 of John 1. And how the Word was in the beginning and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. But in verse number 3, going back to Genesis 1, John has it in his mind, the creation week. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, we see God created all the different things in six little days and rested on the seventh. We have no reason to doubt that. But I want you to understand this. Universe, it literally means a single spoken sentence. So we believe that everything that this universe consists of was birthed into existence by the word of God. Specifically, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse number 3, check it out now. It doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. It says all things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So keep in mind that in this section, John is writing, going back to Genesis. Yes, the Holy Spirit's present. Yes, God the Father's present. But God the Son, right here, clearly says all things were made by him. So when you look out into the constellations at night, when you look at the sun shining its beams during the day, when you look at the moon shining its rays of light into the night, when you see the earth, the mountains, the seas, 
When you see everything, the grass, the trees, all of that, we understand that all of this was made by the direct hand of Jesus Christ. Myself, including yourself, every person, every being, every animal was created here and placed here by Almighty God. Everything in Genesis 1. The fish, all the fish in the sea, whether it's the ocean or whether it's a lake, whether it's fresh water or salt water. The Bible says all the fowls, all the birds, whether it's, it's a little cardinal or a blue jay or some other bird, or whether it's an insect, a spider, an ant, a fly. We believe that all of this was a direct result of Jesus Christ speaking it into existence. He is the creator. But not only is he a creator, as I read Colossians chapter 1, I wrote down this. God the Son is the sustainer of the universe. God the Son is the sustainer of the universe. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. We see the whole context here is about Jesus Christ being preeminent in our lives. And the reason why he is to be preeminent in our lives is because he is the one who created our lives. And because he is our creator, he deserves to be preeminent. But here in the context here, we see that the Bible speaks about how, how he is. Right here in verse number 16, it says, For by him, speaking of Jesus Christ, God the Son, back up to verse number 16, and you see it speaks about the Son specifically. And then it goes on and about how we have redemption through him, how the forgiveness of sins and how he's the express image of the invisible God. And in verse number 16, it says, for by him, that is Jesus Christ, were all things created. Check it out now. It says that is in heaven. So when you look out into heaven, he's the one who put it there. Whether it's God's throne or the, the outer space or where the birds fly, then it says all that are in the earth, visible and invisible, everything you can see and everything you can't see. So when you, when you look at the ground, you see the grass, you see the mud, you see the clay. But far beyond that, what we cannot see, God created that. It goes on to say, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, God created it all. It says, all things were created by him and for him. So, of course, we get that in verse 16. He created it there. But I am told that the earth is moving in outer space at 67,000 miles per hour or something like that. That is fast. That's insanely fast. The earth, if the earth were to just move a few inches closer to the sun, the Bible, uh, excuse me, we are told by, by, by scientists that the earth would, would burn up. And if the earth was just a few feet or a few inches away from the sun in its orbit, the earth, would, we would freeze to death. What holds it all together? What holds an atom in place? What keeps us here on the earth? What holds gravity in place? Well, verse 17 of Colossians 1 reveals to us who does that. It says, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This term consists, it literally means to sustain. So when we're reading this passage here, I want you to understand this, that the Bible says that not only is he our creator, but I wrote down this, God the Son is the sustainer of the universe. He is the one holding it all into place and keeping it there. We have nothing to fear because God, if he can, check it out now, if God can miraculously speak you and my life and our lives into existence and speak the universe into existence, don't you think that God can keep us all together right here and hold it all together? 
What, what keeps the atoms from just bursting into, in, into all many directions from my body and myself ceasing to exist? What keeps a mountain from, from doing the same? What keeps animals from doing what, what keeps What keeps the sun from exploding? God does. God sustains it all. That is the hand of God. But I also want to share this with you. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, we see another thought about the sun's role in creation. Not only is he creator, not only is he sustainer, but I wrote down this, God the Son is the upholder of the universe. Check out Hebrews chapter number 1 and verses 1 through 3. God the Son is the upholder of the universe. Here in Hebrews, of course, we have no idea specifically who wrote Hebrews. I lean towards a Pauline, a Pauline authorship, but I can't be dogmatic. But here, the Bible says God. The first word is God. So we understand that God is the one who wrote the book, uh, specifically, not a, not a person. And it says, how God in times past spoke to us through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through the Son. The immediate context is the days in which this was being written. And the Bible says that that the Son is appointed heir of all things, and by whom also He made the worlds. He created the worlds, the Bible says. Verse number 3 says He's the brightness of the glory of God. Easy express image of God. And check it out now. And upholding all things by the word of His power. The God who creates is also the God who sustains. And the God who creates and sustains is also the God who upholds. So check it out now. God created it. God sustains it. But this word upholds gives a newer uh, insight on that not only is he creating it, not only did he create it at one time, not only is he upholding it right now, but he's the one who's keeping it all going forward. He's the one who's allowing the earth to rotate and go through the orbit around the sun and all the other planets. He's the one keeping it all going and all in place. I'm telling you, God the Son plays a pivotal role in creation and keeping creation going. What keeps my heart beating? The mercy and grace of God is what allows me to keep living another day. Never forget that. It is the mercy and grace of God that allows the sun not to just explode and burn the earth up. It is the very mercy and grace of God that allows the moon to be in the position it's in so that our world would not be overrun by tsunamis and tidal waves. God is upholding, sustaining the universe because He's the creator of it. So what is the rest of the role of God the Son? Of course, we could talk all night about him, but tonight we're only talking about five things. We're talking about how the role, how God is, the role of God the Son in, and creation. But secondly, tonight I want to share with you, let's move forward. The role of God the Son and the incarnation. The role of God the Son and the incarnation. Make no mistakes about it. Jesus Christ was not created. I know the Bible says in Galatians 4, that he was made of a woman. And all that simply means is, is God the Son left heaven and entered humanity. That's all it means. Jesus is eternal. He always has been, always is, and always will be. Because he's God. 
But there was a day in history, unlike any other history, and that is Jesus Christ became flesh. Jesus Christ became human. God the Son came, became a man. So here's what I wrote down. God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine conception. God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine conception. We read about this in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years, keep in mind, before Jesus came into existence, that is, in flesh. And Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says that, that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, I want you to understand this, that some theologians are, are really, really dogmatic that it means a young woman. And perhaps in the context of, of the immediate context of that passage and of that day, it meant a young woman was going to give birth to a son. But ultimately, it's foreshadowing and, and a prediction down through the ages of time, looking out to where there's going to be a woman who's going to conceive who is a virgin. And see, Jesus' birth, he, he was birthed just like we were birthed. Just like your mother went through labor, Jesus' mom, Mary, went through labor. Just like you came out of the womb and I came out of the womb, Jesus came out of the womb. But what separates how we, were, how we came into the world is, see, see, not to get into too much detail, but see, at one point in time, your mama and your daddy came together with one flesh. And then you were conceived in that way. Mary never came, never, Mary never became one flesh with another man. And that's what separates Jesus' conception between ours. Jesus was conceived, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. We read about this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, how the angel comes and reveals to Joseph and to Mary about the details. And Mary, in Luke's Gospel, we read about, about that dialogue and that, that conversation that she had. And the angel says that with God, nothing shall be impossible. You see, Jesus' birth was a supernatural birth. Why was it supernatural? Because he was God the Son. He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate. You see, the one who created the world into existence by speaking it here is the same God who can miraculously become man without a woman ever knowing a man. God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine conception. Never forget that. I know it's not Christmas time, but we believe in the virgin birth around here. The reason why we do is because the Bible emphatically teaches it. And, and if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you really have a serious major problem with Isaiah, with Matthew, with Luke, and really the entirety of both Testaments. And you have a problem with Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Because if you cannot accept the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, then you cannot accept the fact that his death would make a payment for all of sin. And that leads me to this second thought. Not only God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine conception, but I wrote down this, God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine crucifixion. You see, Jesus' death, he went through the pain and agony of death like all of us are going to go through unless we go up in the rapture and unless, of course, you're Enoch and Elijah. But one day, you see, we are literally born to die. And one day we are going to experience the pain of death. And the Bible talks about that. 
The Bible talks about it in Psalm 90, how our days are just a tale that's told. And if we're lucky, we'll live 70 to 80 years. But Jesus' death was a little different than our death. You see, Jesus was literally born to die just like we were born to die, but Jesus was born to die for every man. Hebrews says that he tasted death for all of humanity. In other words, Jesus paid the penalty for sin, all of sin, homosexuality, adultery, uh, abortion, um, theft, lying, lust, hatred, murder. He died for all of it. And when he goes to the cross, we read that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 35, that he cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At one moment, it's interesting, when you study the Gospels here, this was the, this was the one time God the Son did not call God the Father his Father. Because in that moment, God the Father separated himself from God the Son because God the Son had the burden of all of sin placed on his shoulders. And God the Son, for the first time in his life, experienced the emotion we call loneliness. He, he did not have God the, the Father, did not have God the Holy Spirit there, because Jesus Christ had to die. That's why he was beaten. That's why he was driven to the cross. That's why he was, he was, he was brutally crucified and whipped and, 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 and they laid many stripes upon him. And he did that so that we could have life. And then his burial was a burial like anybody else's burial, except he was so poor that he couldn't afford his own place of burial. So it was placed in a borrowed tomb. And that leads us to the third thought of his incarnation. Not just his divine conception and his divine crucifixion. But I wrote down thirdly, God the Son's incarnation consisted of a divine resurrection. You see, he came and was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. I don't understand all those details. But God the Father put all the necessities in Mary to have birth, to give birth to God the Son. And then, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that he had a divine death. And that is, he went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And then, because he was God the Son and born of a virgin and died on the cross for the sins of the world, the Bible says he rose again. Psalm 16 predicted that whoever this Messiah would be, he would be raised from dead. This, this term, to be resurrected, it literally means to overcome death. I'm talking about a resuscitation unlike any other resuscitation. I'm not, I'm not talking about he was in the hospital room and they said clear and they shocked him back to life. I'm not talking about that kind of resuscitation. I'm talking about a, resur a divine resurrection like, like man, he, was, he, he came back from the dead resurrection. 
Not like he was pronounced clinically dead for three hours or three minutes and somehow he started breathing again. I'm talking about he was, he was dead for three days, the Bible says, and then he came out of that grave. Acts chapter number 2, it reads in verses 25 through 36, in the midst of Peter's sermon, he references David's word in Psalm 16, and he says that this is spoken about in, David, in David's writings and how Jesus would rise from the grave. In Matthew chapter 28, we read about how the women came to the tomb. They were coming. They, were, they wanted to, to, to give, they wanted to, 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 to come to the place of rest and honor their Lord. And in that moment, they saw an angel, and they saw the tomb empty. And they conversed with this angel, and he said, He's not here. He is risen. And then they spoke to Jesus, and they went and told the disciples. Paul writes how he was seen of the disciples. He was seen of Cephas. He was seen of James. He was seen of the twelve. He was seen of Paul himself and over 500 men. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the most crucial historical event that ever took place throughout the history of mankind. Josephus, a secular Jewish historian, just a few years after Jesus lived, writes and affirms his resurrection. And then, of course, the writings of Paul and the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the writings of many others in the New Testament reveal Jesus rose from the grave. His incarnation consisted of a divine conception, a divine crucifixion, and a divine resurrection. We've seen about his role in creation, his role in the incarnation. But now I want to share with you the role of God the Son and redemption. The role of God the Son and redemption. We understand that the word redeem, when you begin to study this word, this term in the New Testament, it literally means that, that there was a time when we were in the marketplace of sin and we were literally being wagered by the devil. And Jesus steps in and buys us out of the marketplace of sin. Redemption. You see, Jesus came to redeem. And that's what he did. Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 24 says these words. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what I wrote down. God the Son redeems the church by eternally justifying their sins. God the Son redeems the church by eternally justifying their sins. So Jesus Christ, because he has redeemed us, he justifies us. Literally, he makes us righteous. There's nothing good enough in me to be made righteous in the eyes of God. Then there's nothing good enough in you. Isaiah said that all of my righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God, and that's it. Just imagine the dirtiest piece of filthy rag that you could come up with, and that's the closest thing it's going to get to being holy in the sight of God. We're just not holy. From the things we think, to the things we say, to the things we do, we are not holy. And that's why we need the justification of God. We literally need Him to declare righteous. We literally need Him to impute His righteousness to us and justify us. And we read about that in, in 2 Corinthians where it says, He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in Him. 
when we read Ephesians chapter 1 and the Colossians chapter 1, I wrote in this, third, this second thought about God the Son and redemption. God the Son redeems the church by eternally forgiving their sins. Not only does He justify our sins, but He forgives us. By the way, if you try to justify your sins in the sight of God, you will not be justified. But if you allow God to justify your sins in His sight, you will be justified. And if you allow God to forgive you of your sins, you will be forgiven. But if you try to forgive yourself of your sins, you will not be forgiven by Almighty God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, the Bible says this. It says, In whom we have redemption through His blood. It's all by the blood, man. You know, what, what, what has happened to modern Christianity is we, we don't reference the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, man, the blood of Jesus Christ is what it's all about. Because He spilt His blood on Calvary is the reason why we're redeemed. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says, in whom we have redemption through His blood. Check it out now. The forgiveness of sins. God has a way to wiping our slate clean. He forgives us. And He keeps a record of no wrong. He has the ability to forgive and forget. We don't have that ability. We like to do that. But we don't have that capability. The one thing that God forgets is the sins of those who call Him Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Praise His holy name. Colossians 1.14 speaks similar. It's literally like a parallel passage. But I wanted to get to this thought. God the Son redeems the church by eternally forgiving and justifying our sins, but also, thirdly right here, by eternally cleansing their sins. He has a way to not just declare us righteous and not just to, to forgive us of our sins, to wipe that slate clean, but He also has the way to thoroughly cleanse us from all impurities of unrighteousness. Check out Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves. You see, the Old Testament sacrifices... They had to do these things. And it was like a credit card payment. That it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a payment good enough for that moment, but not good enough for all eternity. And that's why the Lamb of God had to come, and He had to spill His blood. But check it out. By, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus Christ... His blood, yes, His body was broken, we know that. But also His blood was shed on Calvary's cross so that we could have our sins thoroughly cleansed. I'm talking about when He sees us, His blood covers us, and He sees no impurities of our mortal human flesh. That's God the Son's role in redemption. It's cleansing, forgiving, and justifying. So we've seen his role in creation. We've seen his role in the incarnation. We've seen his role in redemption. But now let's check this out. I wrote down this. The role of God the Son and propitiation. The role of God the Son and propitiation. I want to share three Bible verses where, where this term propitiation occurs. It's in Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, 2, and 1 John 4.10. But before we get into that, I want to explain to you what propitiation means. This word propitiation literally means that God's God the Father's wrath was totally and completely appeased and satisfied with God the Son's death on the cross. 
So when God the Father willed God the Son to come into existence and, and be made of a woman, to be made under the law, to redeem us under the law, He came so that He could literally satisfy God the Father's wrath on Calvary. And so that when Jesus was saying and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt as if God had abandoned him and left him completely, totally lonely on that cross because all he could feel was the lies of the world. All he could feel was the darkness of Satan. All he could feel was the, uh, every other manner of sin you could imagine on his shoulders. And in that moment, the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son of God so that we could experience the grace, mercy, and love of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. I wrote down this as I read that verse. God the Son is the propitiation for the sins of the church. He is. For the sins of the church, God the Father is totally, completely satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to be the atonement for our sins. And look at Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It says, Whom God has set forth, speaking about God the Father here, whom God, in a sense, the Father, has set forth to be a propitiation of Jesus Christ, so God the Son, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. For the church, He is our propitiation. God the Father's wrath was spared upon us and placed upon God the Son. But then check it out now. As I read verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4, I read on God the Son was sent by the Father to be the propitiation for the sins of the church. Look at it. 1 John chapter 4 verse number 10. It says, Herein is love. Not that we love God. You see, mankind, man, in our, in our roots, we run from God. Because man does not love God. But because God loves us, He's drawing us to Himself. And when the Holy Spirit latches unto us, I'm telling you, we are pulled close to God. In a sense, when the Spirit of God was calling out your name, there was nothing you could do except cry out to Him for forgiveness and salvation. It says here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, past tense. And it says, and sent, past tense, His Son to be the propitiation, that is, the complete, satisfying appeasement of the wrath of God on Calvary for our sins. So John says, he says that God the Father sent God the Son to be the propitiation for our sins, speaking about the church. But now turn back to chapter 2. That leads us to the third thought here. God the Son is the propitiation, not just for the sins of the church, but I wrote down this, for the sins of the world. And this right here is what separates myself from other branches of theology. Not only do I believe that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the church, for my sins and all those who come out who call Christ the Savior, but here the Bible says, it literally says, I mean, you can't get around this. You just can't. Look at verse number two of chapter two. It says, and he is the propitiation, Jesus Christ. In fact, let's back up and read verse one. It says, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. He says, live a holy life. Don't sin. 
And he says, if any man sin, because he knows that, that, that anybody who says they do not sin, the love of God is not in them, then they're a liar. The truth of God is not in them, they're a liar. He says, if anybody sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then check it out now. It says, and he, speaking about Jesus Christ, is the propitiation. Remember, he is the complete, absolute, total appeasement and satisfaction of the wrath of God on Calvary. It says, for our sins. So here he has this idea that, yes, he is the propitiation for the sins of the church. But he takes a step further and says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you're using the King James there, the, the, the phrase, the sins of, is italicized because it's not found in, in the original writings here, but it is implied here by the context. And that's why the King James translators put it in here. And it says here, whether it's there or not, it literally means he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the whole world, for their sins too. So in other words, here's what it means. It means that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of sin and made it accessible for all of humanity to cry out to God in repentance and faith and come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So I don't care where you fall into the lines of Calvinism and Arminianism. You need to understand this. Jesus Christ died on Calvary for the sins of the world and makes it possible for all men to cry out to Him for salvation. The role of God the Son in propitiation the role of God the Son and redemption, the incarnation and creation. But now I want to share with you the last one this evening, and that is this. As a church, this is the most important one for us, in my opinion. The role of God the Son and retribution. The role of God the Son and retribution. In other words, judgment. The role of God the Son and retribution and or His divine judgment. Judgment day is coming. And it wasn't in May of 2011. Judgment Day is coming sometime in the future. But I will say this to all those who have ceased to exist during this, this COVID-19 crisis, they are now in the presence of God. And they understand the urgency of the judgment that is to come. I wrote down three thoughts I want to share with you about the judgment that is to come. Here's what I wrote down. First of all, God the Son was ordained to judge the world by the will of God the Father. God the Son was ordained to judge the world by the will of God the Father. When Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, we looked at Matthew 24 uh, sometime back. But in Matthew 25 is an extension of his sermon to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. And in verses 31 and 32... Of Matthew 25, the Bible says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall, he gather, shall be gathered together, uh, shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. And then you can read about the judgment that he writes there. But then also listen to these words in John 5 and verse 22. The Bible says, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. God the Son was ordained, appointed to judge the world by the will of God the Father. That is God's will. That the second person of the Trinity 
judge the world. And then the, another passage for you in Acts chapter 10, verse number 42. The Bible says, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. In other words, the apostles were commissioned to go out and tell the world that Jesus Christ will judge all those who are alive and all those who die. I also wrote down this thought. God the Son will be declared Lord by every earthly and heavenly being of His creation. Every human being that ever existed, that is currently existing, or that ever will exist. In addition to all of the angelic hosts, whether they are still praising God in glory, or they are now in a re re revolt against God, and they're still spirits of this world. In other words, Satan and demonic spirits, or devils. Every being that God created is going to say Jesus is Lord. You say, how do I know that? Well, I know that because Paul's hymn in Philippians chapter 2 declares that truth. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 10, it says that at the name of Jesus, it does not say the name of God the Father. It does not say the name of God the Holy Spirit. Do not misunderstand that. It says the name of Jesus, that is God the Son. That at this name, every knee is going to bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. So check it out now. Every being that's in heaven, every being that's on earth, and every being that's under earth. In other words, every being that is in hell. So every unregenerated person, every unsaved man, woman, boy, or girl, every saved man, woman, boy, or girl, every angelic being, or every demonic spirit, and even Satan himself, the false prophet and the beast, all of them are going to say by a bow of their knee that Jesus is Lord. And verse number 11 says, And that every tongue should confess this word confess, it literally means to acknowledge. So there's going to be a day when the demons of hell, Satan himself, and every being is going to bow and confess and acknowledge with their own lips, out loud, Jesus is Lord. Why? Because it's going to bring the Father glory. Check it out. It goes on to say, all to the glory of God the Father. You see, God the, God the Father has set God the Son up as the judge. And all men will bow to Him and declare Him Lord and Sovereign. And that will bring glory to God the Father because it is His sovereign will. But I also wrote down this, and here's how it all applies to us today. Uh, all that we're saying, all that I'm saying today leads us to this final thought this evening. God the Son has commissioned all believers to warn the lost about the coming judgment. God the Son has commissioned all believers to warn the lost about the coming judgment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We see Paul's writing to his young comrade in the faith, one that he mentored. And in 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, verse number one, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick, that is those who are alive, and 
the dead at his appearing. So check it out now. There's going to be people that are alive at his appearing, at the second coming. And then there's going to be people that have died previously. So all those who are alive, while he actually comes and makes his presence known in his return, and all those who have died, it says, at his king and his kingdom, at his appearing in his kingdom. So Paul believed in a millennial kingdom right here in verse number one of chapter four, second Timothy. But then check it out now. He says, he says, why, why is, is Paul saying Timothy go preach the word? He says, preach the word, man, because God the Son is going to split the eastern sky one of these days. We don't know when, but he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to bring forth judgment to this world. So he says, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. He said, Timothy, when you don't feel like preaching God's word, preach it. Listen, when you don't feel like testifying about the goodness and grace of God and mercy of God and love of God in your life during COVID, do it anyway. When you don't feel like it's going to be a day to tell people about Jesus, tell them about it. Because the judgment day is coming. He said, be instant in season and out of season. Repuve, rebuke, exhort. There's times to reprove nicely. There's times to rebuke sharply. But then there's times for exhortation. I'm here to tell you, church, it's time today that we do all three. Because we know that God is going to judge this world through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But then, Paul said in chapter 2 of verse 16 of Romans, he says that Jesus is going to judge the secrets of all man. You know what secrets means? It means the hidden and concealed things in all of our lives that nobody else knows about. God knows about them, and we're going to be judged by them. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, that every idle word that flows out of our mouths, we're going to be judged by. We are called to tell the world about the judgment. We are not called to set a date. We're not called to do any of that because we don't know the day or the hour, but we are called to tell people that Jesus is going to come again, that Jesus is coming again. The Bible says it, and he's going to judge the world because he is the sovereign king. We've looked at his retribution and judgment. We've looked at his propitiation and redemption and incarnation and creation, and all of this... His role in creation, his role in the incarnation, his role in redemption, his role in the propitiation of our sins and the sins of the world, and his role of retribution should lead us to do one thing and bow our hearts before him and lift up our hands and worship Almighty God. The greater our understanding of who God is should, should reproduce and result in a greater praise and worship. Of Almighty God. I like what the doxology says. It says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, 
please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.